uh, Psalm 68. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, and may those who hate him flee from his presence. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before a fire, so the wicked will perish before God. But the righteous will be joyful. They will rejoice before God. Yes, they will rejoice with gladness. Sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and be jubilant before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy dwelling. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious live in parched lands. God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the desert, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You made plentiful rainfall, God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. In your kindness, you provided for the poor, God. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim good news are a great army. Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoils. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. The mountains of Bashan is a mountain of God. The mountain of Bashan is a mountain of many peaks. Why do you look with envy, you mountains of many peaks? At the mountain God has desired is his dwelling. Indeed, the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among people, even among the rebellious as well, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. One of the things that has been foremost in my meditation this year is the idea of the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, Every once in a while you will see a quote talking about how repentance is a part of the gospel. Or faith is the gospel. And yet we need to look at the scripture and see what the scripture says is the gospel. Everyone who reads their Bibles or attends a church service knows that the business of the church is to preach the gospel. But we rarely ask what do those words mean. We all know that roughly translated gospel means good news. In many, in modern evangelicalism, preaching the gospel means to use emotional manipulation to get decisions from people. Charles Finney used that definition and many people follow suit. It has become part of our vocabulary even. When we talk about preaching the gospel, we're talking about compelling people to make a decision for Christ. To some, as I said, a popular definition, which I read this week, is to bring people to repentance. If you convict them of their sins and shame them enough that they will repent, stop their sinning, and then they'll become better people. And to others, and this is even more common today, the gospel is to enforce gender roles, to promote aggressive white militant masculinity, and make sure women stay in their place. 
This kind of preaching has dominated the church for the last 50 years. To those, however, who love the Lord, even then there is some confusion as to what the gospel is. Is it the proclamation of what Jesus did for me? Does it consist solely of justification? Does it include repentance? What about faith? What is it that we're called to believe? And those are the questions that I'm hoping to answer today. And so I would like to draw your attention to Psalm 68 for some insight. There, of course, is a lot of obscure references here that I could spend a lot of time talking about. But I don't think it would add much clarity. Uh, Some interesting insights, but not a lot of clarity. If we look at that psalm, this portion that I read, you can see God very clearly as the conquering king. We know that it's a psalm of David. David was the anointed king. Another term for a king in Israel was an anointed one. The word anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's his title, the anointed one, the heir to the throne of David. Throughout the book of Psalms, the military power of David and the conquest of all of his enemies was very closely related to the kingdom of God. Mount Zion was where the palace of David was, as well as the temple of God. It was God that brought the victory. And God promised that David's son would reign forever over his enemies if he obeyed and kept the covenant. Of course, one king right after another failed. They died, their son took their place, until finally Jeconiah was cut off, and everything was put on hold until Christ came. But as we read through the Psalms, especially Psalms like this one, we see this military language that Israel would have been very familiar with, pointing to God as the conquering hero, conquering the enemies, conquering injustice. And in many places, confusingly, in the Psalms, God and David are referred to as the same person. This mystery would not be solved until Christ came into the world, where the son of David is also the son of God Most High. So let's look at the psalm very briefly. Verses 1 through 6, we see the attributes of God's justice. The wicked are fleeing away from him. The righteous are rejoicing in his reign. This is a great comfort to those who have been plagued by the injustice of the children of the devil, which still is pervasive today. When you try to get justice everywhere you can and all of the systems are falling apart, the systems promote the rich and those that are in power, and the fatherless and the widows are turned away. But here God, it is in his nature to provide for and bring justice to the fatherless and to the widows. Those whose fathers have died or who have lost the name, the right to the name of father because of extreme wickedness, have left their children without a name, without an inheritance, without resources, without hope, which was especially deadly in ancient Israel. The same with a widow. And so because they had no resources, they were ripe for the abuse of the rich and the ruling class. And so they were. But God here is saying that he is the father of the fatherless, the judge of the widows. God in his holy dwelling in Zion, which is another major theme throughout this psalm. He is coming in justice and in judgment, for he is the one who rides through the deserts. There's the allusion of... I'll just put that there. 
Uh, there's the allusion to the Exodus where God is writing in front of uh, Israel in, uh, in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. So it's a, a beautiful picture of God as the conquering judge caring for his people and taking care of his people as a king and very closely linked to the throne of David. In verses 7 to 10, David continues the allusion to the events of the Exodus where God is leading his people through the desert and a pillar of cloud and fire. Egypt represents all the nations of the world. It's the world that's placed under the control of the evil one, which happened in the Garden of Eden after sin entered the world. Sin is a pervasive cancer that's brought death and slavery and misery to the human race. So these ideas of God or David defeating the enemies have a greater purpose where he's overthrowing the kingdom of sin and death and misery and bringing about the kingdom of righteousness, which would later be known as the kingdom of God. We all have enemies, enemies that are far more powerful than even the great ancient nation of Egypt. But Egypt is a great example of the enemies that continually assail us. It will help us describe what we're all going to go through in the next couple of weeks when all of those New Year's resolutions that we have made go out the door and we go back to our own sinful nature. My father told me when I was entering into my teenage years that I do not yet know the power of sin, and he was right. And this is a great, it's illustrated perfectly in the nation of Egypt. No matter what Israel did, no matter what they wanted to do, no matter what their dreams were, what they loved, what they desired, what they longed for, no matter what their natural gifts or beauty or abilities they had, no matter what stories were in their heart or poems were in their lips. What they actually did for 400 years was they made bricks and built buildings for Pharaoh. That was it until they died. And there wasn't anything they could do about it until God set them free. The scripture tells us that the earth and the weather and the glory of God and his nature as kind and good and all-powerful as the ruler of all brought everything together to deliver Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. But as they saw in the wilderness, there was a bondage even greater than that, which we all suffer with. That's the bondage of sin. And again, there's nothing we can do about it. No matter what our resolutions are, no matter what our willpower is, no matter what our views are, We, as we all know, go back to our same old sinful nature. Sometimes we see small victories, but more often than not, we're frustrated at how little progress we make. Military victories are sometimes good, and sometimes God provides relief for the people of God through military victories. But look at the book of Judges, where the people were delivered from their enemy over and over again, and they went right back to their same sinful idolatry that they had before. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. We need a greater king to defeat, us, to defeat our greater enemy. And that brings us to the promise of the greater king, David, David's Lord, who would deliver us from all our enemies. 
from sin and death and misery and sickness and sorrow and injustice, insignificance, from mass graves, from slander, the things on our hearts that cause us to weep. The greatest enemy is that cancer destroying my own heart, rebellion against God fleeing from him who is beauty and life and light, demanding my own way. That brings us to the word gospel. I'm going to tie all of this together. The Greek word for gospel, as many of us know, is euangelion. We get our word evangelism from it. That word is made up of two words. There's angelon. We get our word angel from that word. It's a message. But it's not just any message. It's a message brought by an official messenger appointed by a king, which was an angelon, an angel whether human or supernatural. The other word is you, E-U. It means good or beneficial or welcome. Welcome news. It could be roughly translated as good news. That seems enough for most people, but it isn't quite enough. For we can use good news for just about anything. Good news, your cat had kittens. Good news, your hair is growing out. Um, whatever you want to talk about. But this is a very specific kind of good news in the scripture. The word in the Greek is used, and it's found in the secular literature of the Roman Empire at the same time as Paul's writing in the writings of the Gospels. And it almost always referred to the cult of the emperor. It was used to celebrate the victories of the Roman Caesar his conquests, his battles, his milestones, even his birthday. So it would be officially pronounced throughout his kingdom by Angelos, his angels, the good news. It's Augustine's birthday today. Good news, Tiberius has conquered his enemies. Good news, he's still the emperor. In the Old Testament, that word euangelion, the Greek word, is used to translate the Hebrew word Basar, which means almost the same thing. I want to go through a few verses in the Old Covenant to look how this good news, Basar, is translated and how it's used in the Old Testament. When the Philistines cut off Saul's head, they brought it back to the land of the Philistines so they could rejoice over it. It says in 1 Samuel 39, they cut off, or 31, they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols among the people. This proclaim it is the same word, to officially declare good news. Our enemy Saul is dead, the Philistines have won, Dagon has conquered Jehovah. David in 2 Samuel 1 He sings how sorrowful that is, that it's being proclaimed as good news in the land of the Philistines. So he says, tell it not in Gath. This is in his song. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. So there the idea is used of of, uh, enemies rejoicing over the victory over God's people. When Absalom, who rebelled against King David, was finally killed, Ahimeaz came to David and said, let's proclaim this good news that David's enemies have been destroyed. That's how it's used throughout the Old Testament. 
There are many, many more examples. The idea of this is this. The word in Hebrew and in Greek means good news, but specifically good news relating to a kingdom. It's the good news of a conquering king who has won the victory, established his kingdom, and has defeated his enemies. It's a proclamation of what the king has accomplished. In the New Testament, this word is normally translated gospel and frequently translated preach. It's translated preach in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. Every time preach is used, it's a translation of to declare the good news of the kingdom. So we see in the book of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then it goes on talking about the messenger of the Lord has proclaimed his way. Matthew 9, Jesus goes from village to village preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. You see, David, Jesus has come to conquer sin and death and misery, and he's proclaiming that good news. In the book of Luke, it says Jesus went and preached, bringing good tidings of the kingdom of God. And in Acts, the apostles followed suit, saying they have preached the gospel in many villages in Samaria. Once again, the declaration of the conquering king sent by the angels of God, the apostles. And this is used similarly by Paul, by the apostles, by the writings in the gospels. So with that in mind, look at where we left off in Psalm 68. We went through verse number 10. And now let's look specifically at verse number 11. The Lord gives the command. The Lord there is my Lord. It's not Jehovah. It's the name for a title, a king. My Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good news are a great army. It's interesting when we look at this verse how a translator bias enters in. Uh, the King James and the New King James both leave off the gender in the translation. They both say those who proclaim the good news are a great army. The Book of Common Prayer in the Church of England translates this, Great was the company of the preachers. Uh, that's because there was a continual war between the Puritans and the royalty as to how many preachers should be in the land. Queen Elizabeth wanted to cut them down to the bare minimum, and the Puritans said, we need more preachers, more preachers, and that bias entered into the translation, which is now sung every Christmas time in the Messiah. In the text, there's no question. The word that's used is the word basar. It means to spread the gospel of the kingdom, to announce the conquest of the king. And it's feminine plural. There's no getting around it. It's the women who are proclaiming the good news of the conquering king. The word is being spread throughout the kingdom by a great company of women. In the context of the psalm, the king, which is now switching to a king that's off battling his enemies, he's won the tremendous victory, which is speaking of God in verses 1 through 10, winning the victory over all of his enemies, over injustice and sin and death and misery. And the word now has come back from my Lord. The king has sent word back. 
and the women are spreading that message that the king has conquered. We actually see this play out in the book of Matthew after Jesus rises from the dead. The angel says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. My Lord gives the command. He's conquered sin and death and misery by rising from the dead. And the company of women spread the news. That's the gospel. Even more than that, the church is portrayed as the bride of Christ throughout all ages. And the bride of Christ is proclaiming the message of the conquering king. That's what scripture means throughout when it talks about preaching the gospel, that Christ has conquered. The picture used in this psalm is the picture of a conquering army. The women are at home awaiting the word. The word comes to them. They are given the message and they proclaim it. The king, Jehovah himself, has conquered. The church has stayed at home and is awaiting the command. They received the command. Jehovah has conquered. And then they make the announcement. That's the good news. The good news is not what we've done. The good news is what we announce, that Jehovah has conquered the enemies, that Christ has risen from the dead. He has conquered the enemy. We receive the spoils, according to the psalm, the beauties of the king, the garments of his righteousness, the jewels of restored Eden. Look at verse 12 or verse 13. When you, this is uh, speaking of the church, When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. Because Christ has conquered and we receive the benefits. The army has fled, the enemy has routed, the king has conquered. He took away the enemy of the curse of the law on the cross. He took away the thorns and thistles on his head. He took away our sicknesses and our uncleanness. He touched us, and with his stripes we are healed. And when he rose from the dead, as scripture tells us, Satan fell like lightning from heaven. When Satan falls from heaven, John the apostle in the book of Revelation hears a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, Salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. That's the proclamation of the conquering king and that's what the gospel is. Faith is the response to the proclamation. The question is, do you believe that Christ has conquered death, 
that he's risen from the dead and that he is reigning at God's right hand over kingdoms and demonic forces and wickedness in high places, then we're called to live like it. We're called to no longer live in fear of the enemy, but to proclaim the message of the conquering king. Paul told the Philippians, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But the conduct is not the gospel. The conduct is the response to the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of what Jesus has done. Our response to that is like what it says in Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Jesus has won the victory. That's why we meet on the first day of the week to celebrate his victory over death and misery and sin. We have been removed from the kingdom of the evil one and brought into the kingdom of God's dear son. The seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent and the women are proclaiming the victory of the king. Goliath has been cast down It wasn't Israel that did it. It was David that did it. Israel collected the spoils. We aren't David. David pointed to Christ. We're the Israelites in the cleanup operation. The ones singing with the women, David has killed his ten thousands. We carry anything into the new year. Carry that. Shame, death, misery, Pain and sorrow has been conquered by Christ. And now we live in newness of life, no longer in fear of the kingdom of the devil, but in faith in the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, teach us to rejoice in the conquering king who has already completed the victory, who has said it is finished and it was indeed done. And teach us, Father, now to joyfully relieve, uh, re- receive the spoils. Teach us to lay aside with the previous year our shame and our guilt and our sin and walk in newness of life, in freedom, in love, loving one another without fear that we might be good citizens of the kingdom of heaven and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.